George comes in. <sighs> you typed? Yeah, listen, George. Sweetheart. Sweetheart. I need a little bit of inspiration here, George. You sure now, do. Tell me, George. Wait a minute. Tell me. What comes to mind, George? What comes to mind when you think about love? Mops. Mops. No, George. I said love. L-O-V-E. Oh, love. L-O-V-E. Yeah. What does it make you think of? Mops. M-O-P-S. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, are we having fun yet? We are having a lot of fun. This looks a lot more like the Muppets we will come to know and love, which is appropriate since that's the topic for these two specials. Yeah, we're getting, uh, we're getting close. This is definitely familiar Muppet territory. So this is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. I would like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find both our bibliography, our list of sources uh, that we're using to tell the story, and also our watch list, where you can, if you would like to, watch along with us. We watched some really cool stuff this week, so let's go ahead and start talking about it. Dave Goles had worked for several regular companies in his 26 years of life. Hewitt-Packard, John Deere, American Airlines. An industrial designer by both education and trade, he was a fan of the Muppets from their appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show and then Sesame Street. But what caught his eye wasn't the same thing charming families across the world. Dave was fascinated with the design process, he said. He started building puppets in his spare time a hobby to keep him happy while he was toiling away at a small electronics firm. In 1972, the native Angelino took the 370-mile trip up to Oakland's Mills College, a preeminent liberal arts and sciences school for women, founded in 1852. There, in the halls that would one day graduate women like psychedelic folk musician Joanna Newsom and Academy Award-winning writer-director Sofia Coppola, Goals watched Frank Oz deliver a performance for the students. After the show, he met Oz and, Dave admitted, stalked him, quote, like an assassin, and Oz invited him to come to New York and observe the set of Sesame Street. Dave made sure to bring some of his homemade puppets with him. Muppet designer Bonnie Erickson saw a lot of talent in Goals' designs and pushed him up the ladder to Henson himself, and Dave was soon back in New York, working part-time as a puppet builder in the Henson workshop. He had no experience as an actor or singer or entertainer of any kind. He was a designer, a visual man, and a particularly good one at that. While he could have been perfectly happy working under Celine, Wilcox, and Erickson for years to come, others saw another talent in him, one he didn't quite see himself. There was no way Dave Goles could have known that he would have become the longest tenured performer in the history of the Muppets. But that's exactly what happened. Henson and Jewel had been pitching an idea for a Muppets variety show for years when they walked into the office of ABC Senior Vice President of Programming and Development, 41-year-old Michael Eisner. A Park Avenue blue blood, Eisner was quickly rising through the ranks thanks to his mentor, media mogul Barry Diller, 
who there could probably be an entire podcast about, and who knows, maybe there is. Jim had a secret weapon whenever he and the guys went into one of these pitch meetings. His black boxes. Showbiz was full of writers and directors that were very good at telling you what a show or film would be. They could bring in pictures, sure, maybe some storyboards or a piece of music that they would think captured the mood, but they couldn't quite show them the project. It was still abstract, an idea. We would carry these big, heavy motherfucking black boxes and cabs to go across town to try to sell the show to network executives, Frank Oz recounts. When the time for words was done, the boxes would be opened, and Henson, Oz, and Nelson would bring out their puppets and bring the entire show to life right there in the producer's office. It had worked on Bernie Brillstein years before. The Muppets are just as alive in person as they are on screen. More so, even. You can talk with them. You can touch them. These pitch meetings would often go on for hours, with each subsequent executive, or producer, or agent, or custodian, pulling the next person into the room and asking the Muppets to perform again and again. Problem was, according to Frank Oz, that nobody in those rooms had the power to say yes. Yes is the scariest word in Hollywood. No is safe. No is easy. No is, most importantly, free. But yes? Yes is going to cost you. Yes takes investment. Yes takes time. Yes must be defended and explained and budgeted and marketed and judged, while no doesn't require any further discussion. Yes can make or ruin a career. No can only sustain one. After Jim and Frank and Jerry finished pitching to Michael Eisner, they returned the Muppets to their heavy motherfucking black boxes. But before they got out the door, ready to schlub their wares back across the park to East 67th Street, Eisner stopped them and said the scariest word in Hollywood. The Muppet Valentine Show premiered on January 30th, 1974. All right, all right, everybody, call that! Now then, the Muppets Valentine Show, which is all about L-O-V-E. Now, what can we say about love? Oh, well, Wally, love is a simple thing. Mildred, you're a trooper. Oh. Is a simple thing. Nick, we're almost there. It's it's good that we are almost there, but it, it's also important that we, like, we focus in on these two. Because there's some very important things, and it's something that, for me, extended beyond the Muppets in general, because both of the things that we watched for this week reminded me of weirdly formative things that I watched in the 90s. Hmm, it's interesting. Like the, the Valentine special seemed like so many of those Disney Channel kid shows that I would have watched, both in terms of the, the comedic beats and some of the, the character archetypes that you would have seen. With the Valentine show special, it did seem a lot cleaner than not only the, the following one, but also some of the stuff that we'd seen up to this point. Um, there was something... I don't know, like, they, they did discuss the fact that Mia Farrow was pregnant. They didn't dwell on it for too long, but they didn't obscure it either, which is nice, because I know that at that point in time, that might have been something that they wanted to sort of sanitize. They did make sure to point out that she was married. True. That was very important back then. They did want to point out that she was married. Wally sort of felt like a, uh, a Bill Murray type, but not quite as charismatic. Muppets Valentine's Show was written by Jerry Jewell and Jerry Ross. Jerry Ross apparently would go on to write for Sanford and Son, Barney Miller, and The Cosby Show. So he had a pretty good career as a television writer. 
This was directed by Jim Henson. And this was their, let's see, right now we got one, two, this is, I, I count, I guess, the third pilot, fourth pilot, right? There was Tales of Tinkerdy, Land of Tinkerdy, and then Hey Cinderella was originally a pilot. Yeah. Now we're here on the fourth try for Jim to make a half hour regular show starring the Muppets. Like we're going to be doing for the foreseeable future, we're going to start by keeping track of what new faces and new characters that are are coming in. Because from this point on, the Muppet universe is going to start expanding very rapidly. And we're going to be getting new characters left and right. And I want to keep track of them. So you already mentioned Wally, who's the host of this show. Wally is actually just the Fred Muppet from The Great Santa Claus Switch. They just put sunglasses on him and made him a writer. We're never going to see Wally again. We meet George the Janitor, who was created by Bonnie Erickson, played by Frank Oz. George will be a character that we see a lot. Mildred Huckstetter, who's the purple lady, haughty woman with the pearl necklace. She'll be around for a little while. Richard Hunt played her. So there's Crazy Donald, but who is he really? I'm going to say Crazy crazy Harry. I was about to say Crazy Ernie, and I knew that was wrong. But he's called Crazy Donald, apparently as a... Shout out to Don Celine, who was known to play practical jokes and stuff at the Muppet Workshop, sometimes including explosions. (laughs) We also meet Brewster, the old man. He's also called the Guru. You know, he he was he's Dave Goals. Um, it's it's important to point out that this is I think the first thing that Dave Goals worked on. You know, he worked in the the shop, and they said, "Hey, we think you'd be really good as a puppeteer." And he said, "I don't think so," but he did it anyway. And he plays Brewster. And then we go to Coosbane that Kermit often reports from. So we meet the Kuzbanians for the first time. There's also Miss Mousy, who appears in one of the musical numbers in this. And more than once, Kermit is going to like try to grab her af- affection, actually. So we're, we're tracing the arc of Jim's journey to creating The Muppet yeah. Show and beyond. But it is really interesting to draw the parallels with what we've seen Kermit do up to this point. And with, this, with the, the Froggy Went a Courtin bit in this one, particular one, we see an entirely different side of Kermit. Kermit does come back for this. Not the lead in this one. He's got two big numbers, but he's not in the lead. Then you've got Droop, who was previously known as the Frackle Snivelly. It's just kind of a, I don't know, he's kind of a sad little monster. We also see Thog and uh, the frogs from the Frog Prince. And then Rolf, Ernie, and Bert make very superfluous cameos. And all, Oh, and also Rufus comes back. Rufus the dog. Still, uh... Not allowed to talk anymore after his first, after, ever since uh, Land of Tinker D, Rufus hasn't been able to talk anymore. Just like the Muppet Show going forward, this has a guest host, Mia Farrow, a great actress. She was, she was just coming off of The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford, which was written by Francis Ford Coppola. She had, of course, come to prominence on the soap opera Peyton Place, and she was in Rosemary's Baby. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? And uh, in just a couple years, she is going to then replace Diane Keaton as Woody Allen's muse and be in a bunch of his movies. That's not going to end well, but without getting into it, I'll say that Annie Hall and Manhattan are some of the greatest comedies ever made. And I also believe and trust Ronan Farrow. Uh, this stuff's complicated. <laughs> Don't pretend it isn't. Anyway, so at this point, uh, she had already married and divorced Frank Sinatra and was with her second husband, Grammy-winning conductor and composer Andre Previn. And as you mentioned, she's also pregnant with her third child in this, which they kind of hide behind kind of um, flowing dresses, you know, or, or bigger clothes, but it's pretty obvious. And I think it's thought, who, who points it out at the beginning? Hey, how was your trip over from England, Miss? Woo! Mission! I don't remember. Anyway, one thing I wanted to ask you, what is the setting of this thing? 
Where are they? This is a question I have for both of these pilots, by the way. It almost seems like they're in a, a boarding house of some sort where they all just happen to be. Like a live-in hotel or like a, even an Elks Lodge. I just, I cannot tell where this place is supposed to be. Like a, sometimes I feel like it's a ski lodge, hmm. you know, where they're just kind of hanging out. Or you're right, like some kind of boarding house or conservatory. Or it's. I wouldn't call it a generic setting because I don't think it is, but they never tell you where they are or what the situation is, or why they are where they are. We've got your host, Wally, who is a, a writer, and he spends pretty much the entire time on his typewriter. He wants to tell stories about love. And as Wally types on his typewriter, he's kind of, what is he doing? He's typing the story into existence, or the bits into existence, I guess, right? I, I think uh, George even goes so far as to say, you wrote. I think he says, like, yeah, you typed? <sighs> you typed. He's typing kind of screenplay-like directions that lead into the different skits and scenes and stuff. I want to break this down kind of scene by scene. But before we do that, I want to add, what were your general impressions? Uh, had you watched, now this is on the Muppet Show DVDs. So this is not obscure. Um, I don't know if a lot of people found them, but they are bonuses on the Muppet Show DVD. So had you watched this, this one before? I had not watched this one before. This one I had not seen. I have seen the next one. I mean, we're going to keep describing it as almost being there, both because chronologically it was, but also you see it sort of starting to take shape. I will say that the two scenes with Kermit were my favorites from this, specifically the uh, the Froggy Went Accordin' one, just because I don't think we've seen Kermit be this kind of assertive. Like, we've seen him with self-confidence, but we haven't really seen him invested enough in something to try to compete for it. There's a There's a great moment where Kermit gets into a fight. For like three days. And it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really cool. And yeah, I was struck by that too. It's not not necessarily something we usually see out of our frog. There are pieces there that I recognize as the Muppet Show. Um, I can also see why they didn't necessarily go on from this premise. So it starts off, again, we're, we're in this, I don't know, beach resort, hotel, conservatory, uh, hostel, whatever it is. And we meet them. And then the first song is they sing a song called Love is a Simple Thing. Love is a simple thing. Love is a song to sing. Shiny as a ribbon ball. How does the rest of this song go? Which is from a Broadway musical called New Faces of 52. We've got Mildred, what do you call her? Erudite, haughty, aristocratic, maybe, the way she talks. She's she's a bit stiff. Or like <laughs> she's stuffy. A, yeah. She's a bit stiff, but she she likes playing the piano. And, um, and so they, so they all kind of play the song. Kermit barely gets like a drive by in the opening shot. <laughs> so they're all in this room and, and he wants to talk about love. And so they sing a song about love is a simple thing. He also introduces Mia Farrow in kind of this over the shoulder graphic. And that's reminiscent of how in the, not reminiscent, I guess, I guess it's foreshadowing of how on the, on the first season of The Muppet Show, they're going to do this thing with the guest stars that's very similar. There's going to be a few things in both of these pilots that are going to be things we see in the first season of The Muppet Show, but not the rest of it. So there's going to be a lot of ideas that carry over into the show, but as the show develops, they'll get worked out of the system. Wally and George the janitor uh, and Mildred and Brewster are discussing love. What did you think of Wally? It almost seems like he's kind of a vestige of their time on SNL. With the way that I'm thinking about some of the personalities that might have been attached to it at that point that Jim would have been interacting with. Like there is this sort of affected cool that Wally has that he probably hasn't earned, but he's laid back in a way that Kermit could be if he weren't constantly stressed out during the Muppet Show's like full run. 
And because he is laid back, there's a degree of separation that's created between him and the rest of the work, which might be intentional given how meta his character is, but there's no real investment in him from the audience, I don't think. He's just kind of a cool, hip Hollywood screenwriter, which by the way, those really don't exist. But he's a Hollywood screenwriter out of like a 1950s film noir. I hate using this word, but he's fine. <laughs> I didn't find him objectionable. I didn't find him especially entertaining. Uh, he was, he was, he was, a, he's not a, he, as much as he's in it, he's not a huge part of it. He has all of these kind of high minded ideas of, of love and, and he just wants to talk about love and kind of this general sense. I don't know. Story wise, the only reason he wants to talk about love is because it's a Valentine special, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no impetus for that. No. It seems like it's just the theme of the episode. Yeah. We also learned there are certain words you can't say when you're at this conservatory. Dynamite. Uh, don't say dynamite. Did somebody say dynamite? Uh, no. Oh, no, no, nobody said dynamite. Somebody oh. said dynamite. Uh, we didn't say dynamite. There, you said it again. <laughs> because uh, crazy Donald slash Harry will, will blow something up. Then we get what I think is maybe the funniest thing. In the whole episode, Crazy Harry blows a hole in the wall just because someone said the word bomb or whatever. And Kermit wants to tell his story of being hurt by love. Wally wants everyone to tell their stories about love. And Kermit's got a sad one. And he wants to tell everybody, but they're too busy (laughs) looking at the hole in the wall. I understand your fellows are talking about love. Yeah, Yeah, well, I want you to know that uh, I happen to be an expert on the subject. Sure, sure, because you are looking at a frog. uh, You are looking at a... You are, you are look, if you were looking, you'd be looking at a frog who has been fricasseed in the frying pan of love. Oh boy, could I, could I, boy, could I tell you, boy, could I tell you about love? Okay, tell us about it. I don't want to talk about it. Good. Good. I'll sing about it. Oh no, he's gonna sing. And he sings, what does he sing? Froggy went according. It's an old folk song, but they, you know, they did their own revamp by the lyrics and everything one very kind of big thing happens in this sequence in this frog so kermit starts singing this song i think mildred's back on the piano and he starts singing the song froggy goes according and then it cuts to like the musical number right the the dramatization of the song Mm -hmm. what is the first thing you see in it do you remember i have to assume that it was a younger kermit kermit riding a bicycle right that's what it was a lot of people know that in 1978 kermit's gonna ride a bicycle in the Muppet movie, and it wowed people. Some people, a little bit more in the know, know that in Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, he also rides a bicycle, and that's two years before that. But this was even before that. So now you're super, super in the know. It's actually a marionette. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find exact details for this, but I know on like the Muppet movie, they had like a 50-foot scaffolding. And I believe Frank was operating it, because I think Frank was their best marionette operator. And they're operating Kermit riding a bicycle with strings from above actually if you look real close you can see them mm. but yeah i thought that was interesting so what is the story of this froggy goes according kermit is in love with miss mousy and he decides that he's going to go and see if she wants to marry him but he's not the only person that's decided that he wants to marry her so she's not sure and kermit trying to stake his claim decides that he's going to fight the opposition of course the opposition is a gigantic rat but kermit isn't deterred and so they just throw down for like three or four days, I think, before Miss Mousy decides that she wants to go with the third option. 
Yeah, she she goes away with Droop because he shows up on a motorcycle, so he's a lot cooler, I guess. I think the character's name is technically Big Mouse. <laughs> is the character that shows up or Large Mouse or something like that that like is his romantic rival. But I do think my favorite moment in the entire episode is when Kermit's like challenges the Big Mouse to a fight and you're like, "Well, that's not going to go well." And then the fight happens off-screen. And Miss Mousy's kind of watching the fight and covering her eyes and stuff while they're duking it out. And you're, you see debris flying and stuff. And at one point, Kermit comes like kind of flying into the into the screen like he's been hit. And then he just kind of gets himself ready and jumps right back into the fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and goes right back out of the frame, back into the fight. If I hadn't seen this, I never would have assumed that Kermit could throw down with anyone. I was going to point that out because we just came out of the frog prince where Kermit couldn't even open up a cage. <laughs> Where Kermit's arms were so scrawny, he couldn't even lift the latch on Robin's cage. The big mouse was probably comparable size to Sweetums. Seems bi- he seemed bigger. Like, I mean, it was, the mouse was huge. It was terrifying. It was not a pleasant looking creature. But so he gets in this big fight with the mouse. And yeah, I love the fact that Kermit's like, all right, dude, let's do this. <laughs> like, Little does he know that I never missed an episode of Kung Fu. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The bigger they are. Not very Kermit-like, you're right. Very, Never seen Kermit be like, all right, bring it, punk. Even more so, because typically that beat with the reveal of a gigantic <laughs> antagonist is just like, oh, crap, what did I get myself into? Kermit doesn't think twice. No. He's just like, I'm committed. Let's do this. Well, no, he, he, he talks to her and he says, I love you. I want to marry you. And she goes, oh, but there's somebody else. And Kermit's like, ah, I, I don't care. It's probably some little mouse, you know? Like, how is that little mouse going to compete with my frogness? And then while he's saying that, yeah, from the background comes this big lumbering monstrosity <laughs> and it comes in and then, yeah, and he's like, let's fight. And I, th- as soon as it starts, you're like, all right, well, Kermit's going to get his butt kicked and that's going to be the joke. I feel bad because my immediate thought was that it was Debo the mouse. Why are you tripping, Debo? Shut up, fuck, I knocked your ass out. Oh, man, that's messed up. Won't you give him back his chain? What chain? Yeah, what chain? Debo. It's kind of coming to take your bicycle. Right. Waiting for Kermit to grab a brick or something. But it's a Friday reference for people not in the know. Um, You should watch Friday, by the way. It's very. He comes in and Kermit's like, well, I'm going to fight. Miss Mousy's like, he can kill you. And he's like, let's do this. And so they fight, like I said, for like all day and all night. And then it cuts, it, it, it dissolves and cuts away. And. The mouse and Kermit are both laid out flat on the ground. Mm-hmm. They've been fighting all night. They fought to a standstill. <laughs> and Miss Mousy comes out and asks them, who do you choose, Miss Mousy? We've been fighting over you all night. And then uh, Droop, who's just like this snivelly looking, uh, I said he was one of the frackles in the great Santa Claus switch, rolls up on a hog. <laughs> like just rolls up on a, on a motorcycle. And she's like, eh, I'm going to go with him. <laughs> <laughs> just like which is funny because either one of you guys are you're a giant you were you were a frog riding a bicycle you're a giant mouse he's a dude he's this guy's got a harley maybe it's just because of the name but he kind of reminded me of some of those old droopy dog cartoons where droopy would be a consummate ladies man but you wouldn't think so given the way that he carries on i mean it, miss mousy and him they stay together for the whole episode mm-hmm. i agree with you i think this is probably the best the most fun sequence mm-hmm. in the entire show so then we come back and wally decides it's time for us to meet our guest star miss mia farrow 
And uh, she enters and all the Muppets kind of freak out that she's coming. She's wearing kind of flowing and concealing clothes, but they very quickly point out the fact that she's pregnant. What I thought was fascinating with this, and this is something that's going to happen on the Muppet show, is that when Mia comes into the show, she already knows all of them by name, mm-hmm. <laughs> like she knows them. There are references to like past incidents once or twice, I yeah. think. And she's like, hey, Droop, how you doing? You know, or hey, Droop, or hey, Wally. And it's and that will happen on The Muppet Show. But I guess with The Muppet Show, the illusion was always that this was a show that people knew of. So when people came to do the show, they they were familiar with all the famous people that ran the show. In this, it's like the first time, and it's just this beach resort. <laughs> and she comes in, and she knows all their names, even though they've only existed for five minutes, but they're old friends. Then there's some fairly awkward and hacky comedy about a crumpet that I thought fell pretty flat. There was a really weird moment, too, where Mildred seems kind of jealous that Mia has three children, mm-hmm. and then seems to imply that she's not getting laid. <laughs> well, she Mildred's character was interesting because I didn't want to call her uptight. She's, she's stuffy, but throughout the episode, she does seem like she wants to connect with someone. You got kids like them? Well... Sort of. It's weird, lady. Uh, weird! Uh, tell me, Mia, tell me, yeah? How many children do you have? Three. Now, uh, there's a new one due in March. Oh, how precious. Well, some girls have all the luck. Mm, takes a little more than luck, Mildred. Yes, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> and you're like, Mildred needs to get some. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Mildred does seem to want a genuine connection with someone slash, you know, get freaky with someone. It's Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. Who doesn't? Oh, and then Mia receives a Valentine from Thog. People will, of course, remember Thog from the Great Santa Claus Witch, the big blue monster. He gives her a card that says, Be my Valentine? Was that just a joke that he can't spell? Yeah, but that's also kind of meta because they're about to go into a song number. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if it was it was a joke more about the fact that they were about to sing. This leads into a duet <laughs> between Mia and Thog. What was the name of the song? Uh, the song was Real Live Girl. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. It was particularly entertaining because the implication was that Thog has been denied a lot of physical affection, and not just like in a romantic context, but seemingly just period. And... I felt really bad because as I was listening to it the first time, I just thought that Thog was a neckbeard. And if this had taken place like 30 years or 40 years in the future, he would be like an aggressively angry and lonely neckbeard. If he wasn't so innocent and sweet, he'd be an incel. Oh, yeah. So she gives him a little kiss and then he starts to sing a song called Real Live Girl, which is from a 1962 musical Little Me. Uh, which was a Neil Simon play, actually. So she gives him a kiss and he does his little thog dance, which he had also done in the Dick Cavett show when he made his appearance, where he does this kind of like shuffle. Mm-hmm. And then he breaks into the song Real Live Girl, which is, I have just been kissed by a real live girl and all I want is a real live girl. So here's my question, Nick. Does that mean he's used to fake dead girls or real dead girls or live fake girls? Like I haven't figured like, or it's just... You're right. Just like a girl touched me. It's kind of that. The weird thing about this bit, and I I don't want to linger on it over long, but it seems like it is very much defined by the time because we talk about him being an incel in the modern day, but in the early 80s, he's the guys from Duran Duran who are singing about Electric Barbarella. And there's no, with that particular context, him just thinking of a real live girl, it just seems like affection deprivation. Like, 
Thog was so sure that no one would want to spend time with him. And then Mia Farrow comes on and he's like, I got a kiss. All of my preconceived notions are just gone. Not knowing the context from the musical, it feels a little bizarre in this. It's also because it's coming from a giant, like nine foot tall blue blob with like a little puppy dog face. Going forward, we're going to have to get used to Muppets and humans digging each other. It's going to be a thing. It's something that predates this, though, because you had the uh, Lily Tomlin thing on the the Land of Gorge bit. Yeah. When we get to the Muppet show, Kermit is quite the player. Oh, yeah. Ladies love Cool K. So <laughs> it's meant to sound sweet, but it could also be a serial killer singing. I'm simply drowned in the sight and the sound and the scent and the feel of a Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, like, it's a little frightening. If this had been sung on, on Gorch, it would have an entirely different context. Then we go back to Wally, and he decides it's time for Mia to hang out with the dog. That's pretty much it, right? He just goes, Mia needs to be with the dog. Kind of, yeah. And then Mia decides that she's going to jerk the dog around a little bit and talk about all these things that she would love to have in a dog. She sits down and hangs out with Rufus from Land of the Tinker D, who, as I said earlier, has not spoken a word out loud since then. They use Rufus and not Rolf, which I thought was interesting. I'm guessing because Rufus, because Rolf is too much of a character, right? For, to play like a dog. How long had it been since he'd been on Jimmy Dean at this point? 63 to 66, so almost a decade, eight, nine years. Mm. I think they pick Rufus because Rolf is, um, Rolf's not really a dog. Right. Rolf's a, an old, like, laid back dude, you know, <laughs> and Rufus, because remember Land of the Tinker D, nobody saw that. Mm-hmm. Right. We've seen it now, but that never aired. That was never a special. That was a 15 minute pilot presentation. They just are using this puppet as like generic dog. They call him Rufus. But instead of him having a personality like Rolf, Rolf is a dog, but he's really just Rolf. Rufus is a dog and they have him act like a dog. <laughs> so there's different levels of sentience. Mia basically talks about how she wants to get a dog and she goes about describing what she would want in a dog. And Rufus keeps trying to what, become all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. He, he models all of the behaviors that she wants. So my question is, is, does he really want to leave the Muppets? Are they treating him that badly? I think he just wants to be with Mia. Yeah, that was my question. Or is it just a beautiful movie star is there and she wants to take a dog home? And he's like, I'll do that. I mean, movie stars are famous for spoiling their dogs. That is true. I once I have I have walked more than one famous person's dog for them while I was working in movies. And we'll tell you who, but he played Nightcrawler in a X-Men movie one time. It's a very long list of people. Yeah, it's like two people. Uh, then they then she breaks into a song called Believe Me If I Lose Endearing Young Charms. Believe me if all those endearing young charms. Apparently a song written by a British poet named Thomas Moore, who had written it for his wife, who was hiding out from the world due to her smallpox scars. And he wanted to tell her that he loved her no matter what, to let her know that his love was unwavering. And that's kind of what the song is about. Her voice is okay. I don't think anyone thinks of Mia Farrow as a singer. To be fair, my exposure to her has been relatively limited. You should definitely see Rosemary's Baby. Great movie. I don't know. She's, she's not super known as a singer. And I, I mean, she can carry a tune. 
And that's we're going to see that through all, all the Muppet guests. Like, yeah, they're going to be the musicians that they have on, you know. pretty. I mean, Sylvester Stallone sings on the Muppet Show when he's on it, I think. Everybody tries to do a little singing on there, and she's better than I would do, for sure. So then we go back to the house or whatever it is. And <laughs> it was a funny moment, I thought, where uh, Crazy Donald blows something up again. Mm-hmm. And George has had enough of this. And he basically leads everybody else after him like a with like an angry mob. <laughs> Crazy Donald, you have blasted your last! Get him, guys! <laughs> and they're like chasing him around the house. While that's happening, while George is uh, basically getting out the torches and pitchforks to try to take out Crazy Donald, Wally introduces the next bit. And he's like, oh, love is everywhere. Love is universal. And I wonder what it's like on other planets. And we go to the planet Coosbane. This is Kermit the Frog speaking to you from the planet Coosbane. There is a hush in the air. This is the traditional time of courtship of the Coosbanian creatures. We're waiting now for the male Coosbanian creature to make the first move. Coosbane is the Muppets alien world and Kermit. Now, Kermit had been on Sesame Street now. Like we said, he was on the first season and then he was on the third season and the fourth season a little bit. But he would often show up in this with his trench coat reporter outfit Mm -hmm. and he's reporting from the planet and he is there to report on a mating ritual. Yeah. Golly, a hoop hoop. To me, this scene is just an excuse for some truly weird Muppets, some performances, and some nonsense noises from Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson. I just thought they were trying to get stuff past the radar, like, very poorly. <laughs> yeah. Because there's yeah. there's no real question about what they're doing or how it ends. I'm pretty sure it ends in an explosion yep. in typical Muppet fashion, but... It does. It's it's a double entendre, so it works out. They're performing this mating ritual, and they're saying all this weird stuff, and Kermit's commentating it like it's a sporting event almost. They must be, I mean, Frank and Jerry must be blowing out their vocal cords on this one, though. They're probably laughing the entire time, too. Eventually, the, the female, apparently the female expresses her interest in the male by laughing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. That's the traditional response to the walk-walk. <laughs> oh, there she is, and what a beauty. Then then they decide to do the Galio hoop-hoop, and Kermit's like, Well, this should be very exciting. Say television first, ladies and gentlemen. The Kuzpanian Galio hoop-hoop. Watch closely now. They're going far, far away from me. He's just about to make his turn now. This is it, ladies and gentlemen, the Galio Hoop Hoop. Galio Hoop Hoop! And they run at each other at super speed, slam into each other, and explode. And what is left after the explosion? Baby. Couple babies. Handful of babies. Yeah, uh, we'll go back to Coos Bane, but this is the most famous Coos Bane bit. They will do this again. Mm. But uh, yeah, the, the Galio Hoop Hoop. It's how the Coos Baneans get down, and getting down is part of Valentine's. So Wally then comes back with Mia, makes a couple of mild sex jokes, and then George enters, cleaning around Mia, and he starts going off. He's kind of the, George is the, uh, he's the Grinch of this one, right? Mm-hmm. He's the grump. He's the one that doesn't believe in love. But he does love one thing. What does he love? He loves his mop, which they, they foreshadowed, but they, they use it here sort of like a revelation to sort of call back to it. And there's a little bit of denial about it before he finally comes to accept that he just really loves his mop. Well, Mia has to kind of explain to him what love is, right? He, you, you do love somebody, or something. Mm. You love your mop. 
Oh, that's crazy. I don't love this mop. Oh, it's a good mop. It's useful. It's cute. See? Huh. You do love your mop. Oh, go on. And we just like being together. That's what love is, George. No. Yeah. I mean, I love my mop. You love your mop. I love my mop. Hey! Hey, everybody! I love my mop! Kind of a Ebenezer Scrooge moment, <laughs> you know? I had made that connection, but you're 100% right. And that transitions us into our finale, where the Muppets sing, We Got Love. I looked this up, it was interesting. It's from a 1970 Broadway musical called Pearly. It won a Tony for Best Performance in a Musical for Blazing Saddle star Cleavon Little. Hey, where are the white women at? Ah, interesting. Going with our probably having to mention a Mel Brooks movie once per episode. We could have worse habits. Uh, the performance is fine. It's just a love song. But they're but they're all singing. George is singing. Like, everybody gets in on it now, right? Everybody's all about singing about love. And then, of course, at the end, Crazy Donald comes in and, um, you know, blows everything up. And then Wally comes on to say goodbye. And everyone is kind of coming up one at a time to say goodbye to Mia. And then for some reason, Rolf, Bert, and Ernie are also in line. <laughs> I was wondering about that, because I know, I mean, Kermit was on Sesame Street at this point, so maybe it was a bit more lax, but... Well, Sesame Street was super popular at this point, right? I mean, this is 1975. It was, but I, I always felt four. like they tried to keep a lot of the Sesame Street Muppets more distinct from it. They did. They would have had to have gotten permission from CTW to use Bert and Ernie on here. Hmm. Like, that would have been something, you know, uh, they had the exclusive rights to use those characters. You know, Cooney was pretty, I won't say she was slack about it, but, you know, if Jim asked, mm -hmm. he was going to get to use them. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, they they would show up, you know, they would show up on The Muppet Show every once in a while and there'd be other things. But I just think this is just supposed to be a gag. Like, yeah, you just watched this thing about the Muppets. Here's three Muppets you recognize. <laughs> Like, end of at the end. Because I even think someone says, like, what are you guys even doing here? It's kind of a weird way to end it. Did this come together for you? The the sketches and this idea of it all being about love and Valentine's Day, did it feel like it, it came together? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, there's such a thing as early installment weirdness. And yeah, I think the bigger thing is that I th Jim missed his mark because this seems like it was something that would be for kids. And I, I know that sounds strange given some of the stuff that we discussed getting past the radar or Mia Farrow. I'm sorry. Have you seen the Galio Hoop Hoop? The Galio Hoop Hoop is not for kids. I grew up on 90s cartoons and tons of stuff wasn't for kids. Dude, I grew up watching The Muppet Show. Uh, Galio Hoop Hoop was for kids. <laughs> okay. Like I, Ren and Stimpy and Rocco's Modern Life have just warped my idea of what's kid appropriate. But the thing is, in terms of a lot of the tone and the beats that it hits, it felt more like a kid's show. I'm still stuck on the general kind of premise and the setting and what... Now, I don't think this was meant to be, so we say this is a pilot, and it was. Uh, Michael Eisner said, sure, let's make a pilot for The Muppet Show. But it's called The Muppet Valentine's Show. It's, it's definitely a standalone special that was supposed to be kind of a template for a show, but I don't think the show itself was going to be like, I, I guess I don't know what the show was going to be. I don't think this was supposed to be an exact sample of what the show would be, but more of a demonstration of what the show could be. If Mia Farrow weren't in it, I could see it being a pitch reel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at that point, they had done so many appearances on talk shows, and they had done stuff on stage with Julie Andrews and Cher, and they did the Goldie Hawn special, so they were well-known, and they had connections. 
especially like Bernie Burlstein, of course, had connections. I think Mia Farrow was maybe got through Bernie Burlstein. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you can remember, Mia Farrow was a pretty big star when this happened. This is 1974. She was she was a real big star when this was made. So that is a coup to get her on, the, on your first episode. Yes, it's about Valentine's. It's about love. But I guess what I appreciate so much about the Muppet Show proper is there is a sense of place behind the scenes in a vaudeville theater. This doesn't have that to me because, again, I can't figure out what this place is. (laughs) And so I don't know why all these characters are together. I don't know what all these characters are doing together, what, why they're doing, why he's writing about love. It felt unmoored to me. And so it was just a bunch of bits. If this had been picked up, it probably would have taken them about a good four or five episodes to figure out what they wanted to do with them. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I enjoyed it. And I, you know, I enjoyed the Muppets. And this was, you know, again, we're getting closer and closer. And there was a lot. The Froggy Winnicorton was really high energy. The song was really catchy. And like you said, it's kind of this cocky, sexy Kermit, you know, (laughs) like ladies man Kermit. And I enjoyed the Coosbane stuff. And I enjoyed all of it. But we're in this period where we know what's coming. In fact, it's next episode, but we know what's coming. And so it's almost to me a little frustrating watching these two episodes because it's like, oh man, we're not there yet. I know what this is and it's, you haven't quite found it yet. The Muppet Valentine Show was treated to a warm reception and favorable reviews. Variety called it absolutely delightful. ABC liked it. Everyone was impressed and happy and desperately wanted to work with Jim Henson again. But a weekly show? Uh, no. That wasn't going to happen. At least not yet. As much as people had enjoyed the Valentine show, it didn't inspire anyone to greenlight a complete series. Not even Michael Eisner. I mean, puppets were for kids, right? So Jim tried again amongst a deal that set up an after-school special and maybe a movie of the week. He convinced ABC to let him produce a second pilot. The Valentine show hadn't quite caught fire, like they'd hoped, so they needed to make some changes. The second pilot, the Muppet Nonsense show, would jettison the idea of a guest host, and would be, as Jim wrote, a lot more zany comedy. More magazine-type pieces and continuing characters that the audience will get to know and love. It would have a new structure, leaning even further into Laugh-In and Monty Python territory. They created brand new characters, lots of them, to fill out the world. They put together a rock and roll band, led by a creature that seemed to be half Elton John and half Cheshire Cat. A couple of old coots that didn't seem to have anything nice to say about anything. A gang of unruly pigs, including a blonde, insultingly used as a featured extra. A culinarily questionable chef who spoke in faux Scandinavian nonsense. And a blue bird with an American flagpole shoved so far up his ass he could taste the stars. The decision was also made to change hosts. There would be no human guests, but you still needed someone to guide you through the craziness. Wally the puppet formerly known as Fred the Elf, was shoved back into the drawer and the lead was given to Nigel, a new yellow puppet of vague ancestry, designed by Jim and built by Dave Goles. Despite being operated and voiced by Jim Henson, author Christopher Finch described Nigel as totally lacking in spunk and charisma. 
Jim himself called him a middle-of-the-road character. He was too laid-back, too normal, and way too boring. After being barely used in the Valentine show, Kermit the Frog was given even less to do in sex and violence, completely pushed off to the side. Just a member of the ensemble. I can't help but imagine him watching from the wings, green, er, with envy, as Nigel performed his hosting duties with predictable mediocrity. What does that little bastard got that I don't, he must have thought. Don't worry, little buddy. Your time is coming. No one even remembers that punk Nigel these days. The title would be a source of consternation. The network didn't like it. They thought it would turn off parts of their audience. But Jim stuck by it and dug in his heels. The title was ironic. It was self-deprecating. It was gently subversive. And it was funny. The Muppet Show, Sex and Violence, that aired on March 19th, 1975, is not THE Muppet Show. But it is close. So close. But not quite there. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the end of Sex and Violence on television. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Muppet Show. So Nick, here's here's what I'm thinking. If you took a classic episode of the Muppet Show and you yanked out Kermit and you put it in a blender, you would get the Muppet Show Sex and Violence. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. You've got a, a heavier focus on non sequitur. So the blender analogy actually works pretty well because we we have it sort of seems like they're trying to create the impression that we're flipping channels. Because we'll come back to certain things. Like you see the wrestling bit a couple of times. Yeah, and I want to get into that because I actually have a problem with that. (laughs) I actually think that's the downfall of this particular particular pilot. So the Muppet Show Sex and Violence, which was named because Jim thought it would be funny. And to kind of poke fun at the Muppet's name, you know, or their their reputation as kids entertainment. And also to be ironic, you know, I mean, it's obviously not going to be full of sex and violence. Although, you know, there's a little bit of both. Uh, It was written by John Stone. Jim Henson, Norman Stiles, and Marshall Brickman. Interestingly enough, no Jerry Jewell, and I couldn't find why not. But this is, I think, the first thing we have covered since Jimmy Dean show, that Jerry Jewell wasn't one of the writers. John Stone, obviously the lead writer on Sesame Street. Jim Henson, Norman Stiles, who was also another Sesame Street writer. And then there's Marshall Brickman, who was a former head writer on The Tonight Show and would go on to write several films with Woody Allen, including Annie Hall and Manhattan. And he also directed the 1986 nuclear war thriller, The Manhattan Project. So he had a career. It was directed by Dave Wilson, who was the director on Saturday Night Live. Because when they made this, they were already working on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Music by Joe Raposo, of course. It brought in 10 puppeteers, including Jane Henson. If you notice, Jane's in the credits. Jane came in to lend a hand. Because there's over 70 Muppets in this. So new faces, just to get out of the way, new faces. We have our host, Nigel. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about Nigel. <laughs> we have Sam the Eagle, uh, played by Frank Oz, designed by Jim and built by Don Celine. Classic Sam the Eagle, pretty much already established, right? I mean, Frank's yeah, he's, Frank's got him down pat. I think he becomes a little bit more cantankerous later on. At this point, he's he's kind of Kermit. Like, he's that long-suffering, everyone's doing things that I don't think they should be doing around here. But he's still Sam. As we'll see with other characters, sometimes it took Oz time to figure out a voice. But Sam is, he nailed Sam right off the bat. 
I'd like to talk to you about the Seven Deadly Sins contest. It's a pageant, Sam. I mean, Nigel, do we really want to get into a deadly sin situation? hmm? Hey, do you believe this cat? I am not a cat. I am a bird. The thing that amazed me watching this was the electric mayhem came in fully formed. Mm -hmm. Like, Floyd gets a lot more screen time. Floyd is a actual, like, backstage character. You know, we've got Floyd, played by Jerry Nelson. Animal, played by Frank Oz. Janice in this, interestingly, played by Fran Brill. So Janice would eventually be played by Richard Hunt. In this episode, she's played by Fran Brill. There's a few times in the first season of The Muppet Show that she's played by a woman uh, named Aaron Oscar. But then it's finally Richard Hunt. But it is interesting to see that they did have some women doing voices. They just, for some reason, didn't stick with that. And then there's Dr. Teeth who is a shout-out to the New Orleans jazz legend Dr. John. And then Zoot, the great Dave Goals plays Zoot and built him, who uh, Dave Goals described as a 50-year-old burnout musician, which is about right. Even when I was a kid, I knew Zoot was on something. <laughs> but the thing is, Zoot's not like, Zoot's more of a, he's more of a, he's like, he's on like Quaaludes. Mm-hmm. He's in the 70s, right? He reminds me more of a Quaaludes type of guy. We also meet Statler and Waldorf. I, I'm not used to seeing their legs. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we see them there just kind of sitting in a living room. Um, little trivia, they were actually named after the Waldorf Astoria and the Statler Hotel, two big hotels in New York. And we meet the Swedish chef, created by uh, Michael Frith, who we're going to talk about in another episode, Jim Henson and Bonnie Erickson. So this is kind of beyond a live hand puppet, right? The chef. Oh, yeah. You see the hands. So it's, I'm assuming it was two puppeteers. It's like a live hand puppet, but there's someone controlling the head and then one person that is both hands. Hmm. It's kind of like a game you would play at like camp, you know, I actually think there's a whose line is it anyway, you know, they had one of their sketches was someone would stand there and you'd put your arms through and they would tell a story and the person behind them would have to make their arms seem like they're the person's arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right, though, you actually see their hands that are those are all those are Frank Oz's hands. This is Jim Henson doing the voice and the face and Frank Oz doing the arms more of their amazing choreography and synergy that they developed over the years. For some reason, he th- he also comes from, there was a, a Sam and Friends sketch that we didn't see because uh, I don't think it's available or doesn't exist anymore called Chef Omar. It's kind of similar to this, where the Omar character talks in like a fake German. <laughs> He's the Swedish chef. Everybody knows him. What do you think people in Sweden think of the Swedish chef? I'm going to look that up. Are they offended by the fake Swedish Somehow chef? I doubt that. Um, I don't know. Especially because he's been around for so long and he's such an icon. What people would have thought of yeah. him in the 70s might be a different question. But but if he was like Chinese, um, he'd be offensive, right? Absolutely. And I mean... Although he is, for some reason, subtitled in Chinese. <laughs> I think that was Japanese. I could be wrong, though. But I, I think I read it was Japanese, Chinese, but either way. Yeah, yeah he's subtitled. Um, I, just, I was just wondering. So it, it, just to get through him real quick, and then... Um, Miss Piggy shows up. Her name is actually Piggy Lee. <laughs> That's actually Miss Piggy's full name. She's named after Peggy Lee. Her mm-hmm. name is actually Piggy Lee. She had been on The Tonight Show, performed by Frank Oz, and then she had been in a thing with Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, where Jerry Nelson played her. She has these, it's not quite Piggy, because she's got these little beady black eyes, mm-hmm. but she's also operated and voiced by Fran Brill. So here again is a female character being run by a female puppeteer, which again, is something you think they'd want to keep doing, but they do not. And the, the last one is Dr. Naga. Well, there's two more. There's Dr. Naga, who's played by Jerry Nelson, who will later be Dr. Julius Strangepork. 
on the Muppet Show. In this, he's called Dr. Naga, but he's he's the same puppet that becomes Dr. Strange Pork. Mm-hmm. And then there is kind of my favorite cameo in it, which is the Country Trio. The Country Trio are these three puppets that were built by Bonnie Erickson and Don Celine that are puppets of Jim Henson, Jerry Nelson, and Frank Oz that are caricatures of them in Muppet form, and they are a country band. Now, the Jerry Nelson and Frank Oz Muppets, I think they show up in the background at some point, but the Jim Henson Muppet is featured at the end, and we're going to see that in other stuff. They first debuted on the Perry Como show and then on the Dick Cavett show. I love the Jim Henson Muppet. Uh, Really cool, bearded with this kind of fringe, and he's awesome. The the Franklin's funny, too. Okay, I'm going to ask this question again. What is this place? We're pretty clearly in a... I mean, it's it's not quite a television studio, but I think that... No, it, it is... It's um, it's a conference room. They say at the very beginning, like, this is the conference room. This is where all of it happens. But then they never show anything. They never show them doing anything. They're just in the conference room. Just playing games with Sam regular. Like, there's a repetition of Sam losing whatever game they happen to be playing. Yeah, well, that's that. That's going to continue with Sam forever. Sam is not smart as half as he thinks he is. We, we open up in a conference room. Well, actually, we open up with a big, <laughs> a big uh, rock sculpture that says sex and violence. And then mm. Crazy Harry comes in and blows it up and the logo comes up. And so then we come into the conference room and we meet Nigel. Um, what to be said about Nigel? Kind of feels like he should be a journalist. Something in that design made me think that immediately. I mean, he does get another job on The Muppet Show. He does not stay unemployed, but mm. he, he gets he gets kind of demoted uh, when we get to The Muppet Show. He's uh, he's boring. This is Floyd here. Uh, Floyd is, uh, well, he, he's sort of the resident musician of the group. Right, Floyd? How's everything going? Cosmic, baby. Right, that, that's sort of musician talk, you know. Yeah. He's real boring. There's nothing appealing about him. I'm trying to come up with, like adjectives or descriptions or lines that he said and stuff i can he's he's kind of a nothing burger he he has a similar issue to our last host in that they're passively in control of things like he knows that the sins are coming in and he's he's still sort of reporting to sam but he's kind of unflappable which is a weird position to be in as a muppet we open in this conference room and that nigel calls the nerve center of the place but he never really says what the place is and then he's introducing us to the other muppets but he's got like no energy to him really Mm -hmm. and he introduces us to brewster we meet brewster again we get to meet animal for the first time he lives in a cage in the conference room or under the conference room we meet floyd pepper and we meet Sam. And Nigel says, Sam keeps things running so they don't get too crazy. So is he like the producer? Or is he standard? Like, Because on The Muppet Show, he's kind of the equivalent of like standards and practices. They never listen to him, but, <laughs> you know. They do, uh, on a couple of the sins, I feel like they checked for approvals. There's the eighth sin, which was... Uh, Wearing funny pants to a funeral. I don't know. It was just weird because Nigel's like, he's the one that keeps things running. And I'm like, oh, he's the line producer. But they never say we're a television show. They never say, I don't, I, again, I, I get no sense of space from this episode. Mm-hmm. But they're talking and they set up the fact that they're going to have a, uh, maybe it's just the pageant. Maybe the whole thing is the pageant. So they're going to have a, a seven deadly sins pageant, which I guess is kind of Jim's more of him thumbing his nose at the idea of this being for kids and the title being sex and violence, like really leaning into this idea like, no, we're going to celebrate the seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. And Sam makes a reference to the founding fathers, which leads us to. Those sort of felt flat. Yeah. Uh, The Mount Rushmore sketches are basically like one or two line jokes between the presidents with a punchline usually being that George Washington doesn't get anything that the other guys are saying. 
I've never cared for Muppet bits like this. We're going to see them in the Muppet show with the houses that talk to each other. Never liked those either. I had a problem with the first one, which is because it's a joke about the Federalist Papers. Um, One, that's definitely not for kids. Fine. But two, Thomas Jefferson delivers it, but Thomas Jefferson was against the Federalist Papers. And then Washington doesn't get it, but he's the only Federalist on Mount Rushmore. Just wanted to point that out, you know, for my Hamilton fans out there. But I've never cared for Muppet Bits like this. It's just like a foam version of it and foam version of Mount Rushmore and they're talking to each other. Then we go to At the Dance. At the Dance is going to be something that we're going to see for a little while. It's going to be a recurring skit when we get to the Muppet Show, which is basically just this waltz playing. It's actually the same music. It's a, it's pretty close to the same music as they're going to use in the Muppet Show, which is just a bunch of people dancing together and telling bad jokes. Nigel even says, uh, while he's dancing, he says, this show jumps from place to place. So he's basically telling us, right, that this yeah. is going to jump all around. One of the faults of this, in my opinion, is that it is edited to the point like where the be- the bits and the sketches they intersperse them throughout the entire thing they they take we like we come back to the president's like three or four times we come back to at the dance three or four times and what that does is it doesn't give them enough time to land any punchlines or to make the bits pay off i feel like they they had they tried to do two sides of something they should have picked one choice for because on one hand we've got the repetition and if it's framed right, okay, we can do the repetition, but us jumping from thing to thing, we could just look at things once because it does, it does carry the impression of flipping channels, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's not even repetition though. That's the thing. It's like, it's, it's like they, it's like they shoot one skit and then they just show us 20 seconds of it at a time. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. As we work through it, like we'll see, it just keeps coming back to these, these pieces. So we have at the dance. Then we go to the wrestling match where the San Francisco Earthquake, who's the wrestler, is uh, wrestling against somebody. This is kind of a parody of the wild world of sports. It is. You're right. Uh, which they will do on the Muppet Show as well. I did notice that Statler and Waldorf have ringside seats, which is pretty good uh, during this. This is where when they said they used 70 Muppets, like the crowd in the wrestling mm-hmm. is just full of Muppets, but most of them aren't moving. <laughs> well, they did that with uh, the frog prince didn't they yeah the frog prince had a couple shots but this is like a wrestling ring and a crowd and like i said they had 10 puppeteers and there are way more than 10 muppets in those crowds and so some of them are just sitting still and it's kind of creepy including janice who like looks dead (laughs) she's just coming down it's okay so these two wrestlers wrestlers are going at it it's not very interesting there's no like you've got the announcers talking about what they're doing but there's no grounding in it like they're not which i mean they're stretching them in strange ways but yeah but not yet that's the thing like in this first one they're just wrestling Mm -hmm. we cut to the swedish chef demonstrating how to make a submarine sandwich he doesn't have his trademark song yet he doesn't have his i checked though it is subtitled in chinese which is weird and there's no real punchline other than the fact that he makes a lousy sandwich at least in this first bit. It just sort of seemed like a non sequitur. It just kind of ends. And that's my problem with the way they cut these sketches up. I have a lit, like the way I have it divided up, there's technically 34 discrete scenes in this pilot, but there's actually only like 16 (laughs) Mm -hmm. because of how often they're repeating things. 
We go backstage and Nigel kicks Sam's butt at checkers. Uh, like you said, Sam, uh, this idea of Sam being all pretension and American values and respect and honor, but not being nearly as smart as he thinks he is, uh, we've never seen that. Luckily, we've never seen that behavior exhibited in our real leaders. So that's fine. So, you know, he gets his butt kicked at checkers and Sam is going to be the heel of so many jokes going forward. Sam the Eagle never does anything right. <laughs> So then our first sin shows up, which is the first sin? Avarice. So the seven deadly sins pageant are actually going to be, as it turns out, seven Muppets that represent the deadly sins. Now, why not have like the Muppets, certain actual Muppet Muppets represent the seven deadly sins instead of making seven really unattractive puppets? Why couldn't animal be lust? I think, well, that was probably by by design that they were supposed to be kind of monstrous, but Oh, of course. It could yeah. also just be the case that the designers liked the idea of designing new Muppets for this particular theme. It did strike me as interesting that Lust was male. Usually when I see Lust embodied as a character in things, it's it's a woman, but... That's okay. Lust, when we get to Lust, he's, real, he's kind of pansexual, though. Like, he's, True. He's, on, he's, yeah, got it, he's got it for everybody. Although he does get a little Trumpy when we meet him. Then we get to the Electric Mayhem and, and Floyd. They, they've done this. They, I think they, this carries on, but Floyd... Even though it's Dr. Teeth's band, Floyd is always kind of the guy that, like, is front and center. But they play a song called Love You to Death, which was actually a Joe Raposo original. It's not a cover. Yeah, the band's kind of all together, man. This is the Electric Mayhem. That was something that stuck out to me about this episode in general. And we touched on it earlier in that we saw the premiere of a lot of new Muppets. But a lot of these Muppets are going to be people that are staples. This looks like the Muppet Show. Like, there's so yeah. many things in this, it just looks straight out of The Muppet Show. And, and this performance by the Electric Mayhem could have just been on The Muppet Show. It's perfect. Uh, one thing to point out, Dr. Teeth, I don't know if you notice, Dr. Teeth will eventually become a live hand puppet so that the person's hands can play the keyboards. Mm. But for this, his arms were just super long. And so he's still a hand puppet, but he's a hand and rod puppet. But his, because his arms are so long, it's a separate operator operating the rods for his arms to make them pound on the keyboard. And you can kind of tell how abnormally long and spindly his arms are when you watch it. There was also a shot <laughs> that I loved where they go into a close-up of Floyd's eyes, I guess his sunglasses, and they turn into these little kind of psychedelic pinwheels for a second. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, he's totally tripping. <laughs> like... <laughs> they were not they were not trying to hide the fact that the electric mayhem was uh you know on the pot or whatever we don't love wally we don't love nigel what it comes down to is this kermit the frog is the host of the muppets and nobody else comes close well he's also better integrated and in a weird way it almost feels like he put in his dues for it because yeah. we we see him sort of come to form basically as jim does well he's barely in this He's got like one line or two where he's in an at the dance sketch, but Kermit's not in this. Kermit's completely sidelined. And according to the book, part of the reason is that Jim was thinking about phasing himself out a little bit as a performer and concentrating more on the behind the scenes stuff. And so by taking Kermit out of the spotlight, he was easing up some of the performance burden. Uh, I'm glad it didn't go that way, <laughs> but uh, Jones seems to think that that's part of the reason why Kermit doesn't have a whole lot to do in either one of these pilots, really. I guess in the first one, he has a little bit more. We meet Statler and Waldorf, and they are sitting in their den and talking. And uh, they look even older, because they're in like this formal room with maroon walls and high-back chairs and a grandfather clock who has a grandfather clock. I was clock. waiting for someone to say Masterpiece Theater. And then they just, all they do is they tell jokes about being old. 
You know, Waldorf, I've been thinking. Yeah? What you been thinking? About the younger generation. What about them? Don't know where they're going. Uh, you can say that again. Don't know where they're going. That's pretty much all they do this whole episode, right? They just tell jokes they, about being They old. didn't seem that mean-spirited either. I think they just seemed kind of sad. Um, they're not hecklers yet. They're just two old men waiting to die. There's a weird reference where Waldorf mentions the Kaiser. Yeah. Which I guess is supposed to be an age joke, but uh, it felt strange. Like, was he a Nazi? I mean, I know the Kaiser's not Nazi, so it's before the Nazis. But it just felt weird that Waldorf was like, so was the Kaiser. And I'm like, all right, um, is he German? That was probably what they were trying to imply, but I'm not sure. But beyond that. So th- now here's where the problems, in my opinion, start. Now we go back to the dance. And this is different from the eventual show. Cutting back to bits they've already started. It's it's just too scattered. This will eventually settle down. But like you said, it does create this channel flipping feel. Now, Kermit makes a very, I'm going to, we promised we would call out problematic material. Kermit is dancing with a woman and he says, Well, uh, I might be able to get you a job on an educational show for kids. I did laugh at that, but I understand why it's a problem. Not okay, especially in a Me Too world. The idea that he's exchanging romantic favors for a job on Sesame Street, not appropriate. There's some weird couples in there, like Statler is dancing with Janice and Sam is dancing with Mildred. It's a very weird. They just slam some puppets together and have them dance. And then we go back to the wrestling match, which is still not very interesting. Then we go back to the Swedish chef. He's still making a sandwich, except now he's added a vinyl record and a rubber chicken. Am I wrong, or is it, does it feel like the chef bits in this episode are just relying on the fact that he talks funny to be funny? The pruning bird, the pruning bird, the smees food is burning bird. It's worth more than pretty because it's worth more. I think that they're there to fill space. Because the thing is, the chef bits are all still one story. They're all the story of him making a giant sandwich. And they just cut them into these little pieces that make them, in my opinion, feel so unsatisfying that they might be a lot better if they were just as a whole. But that's the structure they chose for this episode to make it a little more kinetic. Then we come back to the Electric Mayhem, where Floyd dedicates uh, the next song to all the birds in the audience, which could either mean women or Charlie Parkers. I haven't decided, but either one would be appropriate for Floyd. And that leads into the birds in the trees, which is uh, one of the bigger, I'd say, Muppet pieces in the episode with the six birds. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. <laughs> it felt a little bit like a worse version of the Gallia Hoop Hoop. So there's two male birds. One of them, he can only say, what do you say? And the other one can only say for crying out loud. And then there's two girl birds. And all they say is, oh, really? And you know. And then a new male bird shows up called, that can only say, oh, boy. And then what do you say goes over to the girl's branch. And apparently the oh, really girl really digs him. So then the oh, boy flies over to the other girl. And then for crying out loud feels left out until a hipper bird comes along saying, right on, right on. So the Matthew McConaughey bird. And he steals the females because apparently he's cool. I didn't get what was supposed to be super amusing about them just saying the same words. Like if them having the like, you know, because each of them only said, you know, like said, oh boy, or what do you say? If they had worked that into some kind of musical rhythm and it eventually found kind of a song out of it, I think it could have been cool. But instead it's just like, these two birds think these two birds are cute. And then the two birds run away. It's kind of exactly like Mousy goes a courting. Like these two, mm-hmm. the, the, the female birds run away with a cooler bird. 
the reason I think this exists is it's to show off the skits where they have the black suits and the black background, mm-hmm. right? So they have the black background, they're wearing black suits. And so they have the bird puppets and because so they blend in, you can't see them and it makes it look like the birds are flying. So I think it was more of a technical piece than mm-hmm. anything else because I just, I didn't find it very entertaining or funny. Now we're back in the conference room. Sam apparently isn't good at rummy either or go fish. I think they're playing rummy, but it could be go fish. And then Envy shows up, another another sin shows up, Envy. And then we go back to Mount Rushmore. Then uh, I like this one. Nigel comes out in a tuxedo and introduces the theater of things which whatever that is, we don't establish what that is. But we have a skit involving a group of pencils being introduced to their new ruler, who is a ruler. (laughs) It was this one was probably one of the tighter sketches on it, too, because it's it's all wordplay. Yeah, it was funny. It's all just measurement pencil ruler puns. Thank you. We all know the last ruler was crooked. Yeah, yeah, right. He couldn't measure up. No, I couldn't measure up. Now I'm straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell you where to draw the line. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Now get the let out. I think I liked it because it stood on its own. Like, this is the only time we see it. And it's short. It's really short. It's short. Oz is playing the uh, ruler leading a bunch of pencils and making a bunch of puns. And I thought that one was funny. The next one is um, called Aggression. It's a couple of creatures known as Green Heap and Blue Heap. We're just these kind of like tarantula looking monsters. And they're arguing over something. And then two creatures called Stalks, which are these fuzzy hook-nosed creatures come in. The Heaps speak gibberish. The Stalks also speak gibberish, but they speak gibberish with like a posh accent. And they try to like talk the heaps down, like, and, and like, you know, try to squash their beef or try to tell them that, wait, I mean, you can't really hear what they're saying. Obviously, they're all speaking nonsense, you know, but they're trying to talk them down, trying to explain to them that violence isn't the answer. And so the heaps attack him and break his nose and they run away. <laughs> the, the poor little guy runs away with his nose broken and the heaps laugh and make fun of him. The heaps may well have started fighting each other if the other ones hadn't intervened. But they both turn on the stalks so quickly. They're just yeah. like, why is this guy talking to us? I just thought the sketch was kind of mean without a payoff, without much payoff. These two guys are being mean to each other or, or angry at each other. Someone tries to calm them down. He breaks his nose and they leave and they laugh about it. And I didn't know what I was supposed to get out of that. You know, it just it felt mean. That's all. Then we go back to at the dance. This one has Bert dancing with Ernie, who's disguised as a woman. And this is going to get repetitive, but this is part of the problem. Now we're back to Statler and Mordorf making more old jokes. Then we're back to the wrestling. The wrestlers are now kind of in a tangle together, or like wrapped up in like like a pretzel. And then one of them tries to Mike Tyson the other, but ends up biting his own arm instead. Where is it going? <laughs> right? I, I get it. Every time we come back, they are more stretched out. They're more wrapped up in each other. They're more knotted up. There's a progression, but I don't know. Then we're back to the conference room where Floyd beats uh, Sam at chess. He's apparently not good at anything. And then we meet Vanity and Gluttony. And then we get to, I think, the other, probably the big centerpiece, Films in Focus, which is a parody of 70s TV review shows featuring a puppet of Today Show film critic Gene Shalit, who would much later get into some hot water with some very wrong-headed opinions about uh, Brokeback Mountain. What I found interesting about the puppet is it was just a Gene Shalit puppet. <laughs> like they just made a puppet of the real dude. It's a caricature, but that's a real guy. Gene is here to set up his review. Welcome to Films in Focus. And now for this week's film. 
Colossal Pictures has just released Return to Beneath the Planet of the Pigs, the seventh in its series of pseudo-epics. Which is, of course, a satire of Planet of the Apes. I am a big plant, like I'm a big original Planet of the Apes fan. It, it it is to me what Star Wars is to a lot of other people, just because of my weird childhood. And you love Rod Sterling. Yeah, but that that's a whole separate tangent. I'll I'll try to be careful about going down. I did love just how much the uh, Charlton Heston Muppet chewed scenery, because typically with Charlton Heston, you've got a rule where he's got one line per movie that he is just going to ham all the way to hell. And with the, the original Planet of the Apes, he got like three of them. Yes, because there was this is a madhouse. This is a madhouse. Get your damned hands off me, you damn dirty ape! And you maniac! You blow it up! Damn you! God damn you all to hell! Beneath the Planet of the Pigs was playing it entirely straight, and they seemed like they were entirely aware of that at the time. I, I loved, that was probably my favorite part of this particular episode. The pigs include a, a female-voiced piggy, uh, like I said, with beady little black eyes, so she looks weird. I was so sure that I'd missed her, but I, I think I did... I do identify Piggy a lot by her eyes, so yeah. I just didn't catch it at the time. Yeah, she's just there uh, very quickly. And then, well, not super quick, she's in it more, because then the pigs decide to take Chuck to Dr. Naga, who, again, is uh, actually just Dr. Strange Pork. Then there's a scene where they're going to basically lobotomize him. They have Charlton Heston on a table. There's Dr. Strange Pork and a couple other pigs, and they're going to perform surgery on him. Actually, it's Dr. Strange Pork, Piggy, and one other. And it is exactly veterinary's hospital. First we cut along the dotted line and then we put a hinge in the back so it flips up and down. We can look inside anytime we like. <laughs> oh, brilliant, Dr. Naga. It's fiendish. Brilliantly fiendish. Let us begin. The beginning shot of the scene is the exact same opening camera move that they will use on veterinarian's hospital. Someone laying on the gurney with three people over them making jokes, but also there's a how to explain the shot where it goes from a close up of someone doing something off to camera left, and then it it kind of pulls back to reveal the whole operating table as that person walks over to the operating table. You're going to see that with Piggy over and over again in Veterinarian's Hospital. It is exactly the same setup and template for Veterinarian's Hospital. So I thought that <laughs> was really cool. And then Charlton Heston does what every patient of Dr. Bob's on the Muppet Show should do, which is get up and run. <laughs> I just remembered, I think my rocket ship is double parked. Um, he just gets up off the table and runs. And then he goes undercover. How does he go undercover? He, he impersonates uh, a pig, and I, there's something specific about the way that he talked, and I'm blanking on what the, the quote was. He, he, he dresses up as a pig to disguise himself as like a servant. But here's the thing, he's, is Jim Henson's playing the character, and you put the nose on him, and the way the character talked, he's Link Hogthrob. The captain of the swine trek. What I think is one of the most underrated characters. And then we, the twist, which is we pull out and Gene Shalit is now a pig. Mm -hmm. And gives the movie five oinks. I don't know why he would turn into a pig, but here we are. This was one of the highlights, I think. Now we're back to the conference room with uh, Sam and Nigel and Floyd playing Scrabble. And Nigel spells, what's the word? Gribaziggy? I am not going to be able to remember that because I'm pretty sure that's a made-up word. But yes. I, 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 wrote, I wrote it down, Gribaziggy, uh, which is not a word, uh, even though Brewster says it is, because apparently they all hate Sam, I guess. Because Sam challenges 
the word and Brewster says, nope, it's a word. And we're like, I'm like, no, it's not. And then more sins arrive. And here's the other problematic joke, in my opinion, where this gets a little too close to home. We're recording this right before the 2020 election. This will come out after the 2020 election. So consider that. Lust comes in and says, see you later, toots. Know what I mean? <laughs> Kiss him and squeeze him. Love him and leave him. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes if you're lust, they just let you do it, I guess. But he was very, I don't know. He, but he was pansexual, which I liked. He kind of was hitting on everybody. Now we're back to the chef. Here's where I can explain my problem. So we come back to the chef again, and he's finished his giant hoagie sandwich he's making. And then it comes alive for some reason, and it tries to flow, float away. And he pulls out a, a like a little blunder, blunder bus, basically, right? <laughs> and he shoots it, and it comes crashing down. If you took all of the chef bits and you put them together as one scene, which they are, that's your punchline. That is your satisfying payoff. And that is not too dissimilar from what later Swedish chef bits would be like. But by cutting it up into four pieces, by the time you get to the payoff, it, it doesn't work. Because, because it's been too scattered throughout the whole thing. To me, especially with this, it feels like they don't 100% trust their material. That is more likely the case, as, as you mentioned that. Because it could have, so you've got the narrative frame, but it, and it is still effectively an anthology, but if it had been a true anthology without a frame where they just went from one thing to the next to the next. Confidence would be saying, hey, here's a two and a half minute skit of the Swedish chef. We think this is funny. It doesn't feel like they have that, they're that assured, and so they don't feel like they can maintain your attention for that long with, this, with one character or with these characters that they have to keep cutting around. And I think it does a great disservice. I think this could be a lot. I, again, this thing feels, oh man, this thing feels so close to the Muppet Show. Sketches that will be on the Muppet Show. There are so many more Muppet Show characters in this than we're even in the Valentine special. We're getting so damn close. If they had just settled down and trusted themselves, I think they could have made something that was a little more satisfying. But also at the same time, maybe they had to do it this way to learn not to do it this way. With anything that you would create, you've got to iterate. And we've been seeing a lot of the things that sort of surround what the Muppet Show will eventually become. But these two are the first real attempts at that variety show sort of format. Like you had Sam and Friends, sure, but it's this is a, an entirely different tier. So then we go back to Mount Rushmore yet again. Then we go back to At the Dance yet again. And then this has a moment where Rolf is dancing with someone who looks like a female Baskerville. It looks like they put a wig onto Baskerville, his buddy from the Purina commercials. And Rolf's line is, well, I was with Jimmy Dean, but nobody remembers me anymore. So we go back to the wrestling and the wrestlers are, are all tied up in a knot. They're, they're, they're so, I mean, they might as well be the drawstring on your, on your pajamas. Like they're never coming undone, right? They're tied up in this knot, and but everyone's gone, right? The stadium's empty, the, the arena's empty, but, but they're stuck in this knot. And George comes in to clean it all up and kind of looks and then shuts off the lights. That's a piece that could have been done separate, right? Where you could have had the wrestling bit as a whole thing, and then at the very end of the episode, come back to George coming in to clean it up. And that would be a funny comic tag. Right, because it is separate from the action. It is the epilogue to the action, right? Which is after all the wrestling is done, 
they're still stuck there to the point where the janitor comes in. I think that idea is right. I just wish the wrestling stuff would have been, I don't know, funny. It seemed a little unfocused, and it's weird to say it, but it seems like they wanted something more kinesthetic than they could have really accomplished with what they had at present. We go back to Statler and Waldorf, and they make more jokes about being old. Waldorf? Yeah? Either that clock is stopped, or we've just died. And then we finally, after all this buildup, get the Seven Deadly Sins pageant. They're all here, and Nigel brings them all up on stage, and... Roll credits. <laughs> They're out of time. We do see the puppeteers in frame, which was something like I, I ended up rewinding it a couple of times yeah. just to see that because I could identify Frank and I could identify Jim. Yeah. And Jerry's there, too. I could definitely find Jerry. And I think I think I saw Fran. Yeah. Yeah. Fran's there. Yeah. So the credits roll and the Electric Mayhem is playing us out. The Jim Henson Muppet is sitting in with the Electric Mayhem uh, playing a banjo as the credits roll. Yeah, the camera pulls back to reveal the puppeteers running around the studio like crazy. Was this something they were going to do every week? Why Why is this here? If this was a pilot for a television show, why the pullout to show the puppeteers? I'm not sure. Was it supposed to happen every week? Was it just kind of like... I mean, it does sort of create the impression that the whole thing's kind of a party. Oh, it looks like a lot of fun, what they're doing. <laughs> you know, they're, mm. they, it's really cool to see the fact that because in the scene, all these Muppets are running around. And so to see below the screen and to see all the puppeteers also running around with the Muppets and see what that looks like, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, I wish it was longer. It's only a few seconds. Um, I, I'm just I'm not sure why, why they did it, except for maybe just... Yeah, I don't think a lot of thought went into it. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but... Could have just been something they found on the day, you know, like while they were shooting. What's the last little tag? Sloth shows up. Sloth shows up and asks if he's late, and he's got like a pillow under his arm. Sex and Violence, which is also on the Muppet Show DVDs, I think on the season one DVD, but it's just called the Muppet Show Pilot. They don't, uh, they don't call it Sex and Violence anymore. Uh, what it's missing is Kermit. Because Nigel isn't up for snuff, up to snuff. We're missing the guest star, which will come to be a pretty integral part of The Muppet Show. So they had it with Mia Farrow, and then they tried it without, and I guess they eventually, of course, decided that they liked having a human guest star. I will say I loved seeing all of these characters for the first time. It was kind of surreal, because I assumed they would trickle in. And there are others that are going to be home or household names that will continue to trickle in, but still... Yeah, we haven't seen Fozzie, we haven't seen Gonzo or anything. Yeah. Well, technically we've seen Gonzo. Because we've been watching these in, in mostly chronological order, it has been cool to watch these characters spring up. But, but I was struck by the fact that in this one, like, there's a chunk of them. The Valentine special felt like, yeah, okay, this is a, a Muppet Show thing. But this is like, Sex and Violence feels like, no, we're making a new show pretty much all these characters are going to stick. Nigel's going to get demoted. He ends up becoming the conductor of the Muppet Orchestra. And like characters like Brewster don't hang around. They're, they're on some. Mildred is on some, you know, is on the Muppet show for a while at least. You know, these are the guys that, were, that are still the major Muppets. You know, especially the Electric Mayhem. I mean, Animal. Yeah. You know, he doesn't get any much time alone, but they even have, they even start off with the idea, though, that he lives in a cage underneath the... That, that initial impression of him is very much animal. I highly recommend watching these if you plan on going forward with us. It'll be good to have these to compare to what's coming next. The great philosopher Bartholomew J. Simpson 
once misquoted the great comedian George Burns and declared that George Burns was right. Show business is a hideous bitch goddess. I can confirm from personal experience. The reaction to sex and violence was uneven. Some good reviews, some bad. Jim conducted his own research, his own polling, and it had failed to impress with viewers as well. It was too weird. It wasn't funny. Some people loved it, but the only people whose opinions truly mattered, the bigwigs at ABC, did not. They passed on the idea of the Muppets having their own weekly show. Jim Henson was a stubborn man. When he believed in something, when he knew it would work, there was no deterring him from pursuing it. ABC says no? Twice? Fine. What does NBC say? Bernie Burlstein got to work, trying to find another home for The Muppet Show. David Laser, the IBM executive who had worked with Jim on some corporate films, you remember him, the dude's name is Laser, was hired at Henson Associates as a full-time development producer to help Jim run the nuts and bolts of the company, and to help him steer projects to fruition. That was a dream, Laser would recall, about Henson asking him to come on board. Oh my god, oh, probably. But three weeks later, it was a done deal. While shooting two episodes for Cher's variety show, Cher, Jim and Bernie got the ear of a CBS executive and asked them if they'd be interested in a half-hour Muppet show. But the pilots hadn't worked. Tinkerty, Hey Cinderella, The Valentine Show, and Sex and Violence were close to the show he wanted to make. But they hadn't hit. We don't do puppets at night, executives had told Pearlstein. Everybody liked the Muppets, but only Jim and his circle believed they could be more. Jim had once made a living convincing people to buy coffee using two puppets that he had sewed at his kitchen table. He knew how to sell. It's a rare skill for an artist. Most despise that part of the job, but if you're not good at it, no matter how brilliant your ideas, it won't matter if you don't have the tools to turn an easy no into a terrifying and expensive yes. There was only one thing to do. Instead of Wilkins Coffee, the Muppets would have to sell themselves. The Muppet Show pitch reel was 25 minutes long. It used a lot of footage from the previous two pilots, some of their variety show spots, and some tape that Cher and her young son Chaz Bono had shot with Kermit. They shot new Muppet sequences to frame the presentation. But the standout moment comes at the end. After 20 minutes of showing you what the Muppets could do, it came time to make the sell. It was originally supposed to be Kermit making the final plea, but instead they used a salesman named Leo, who was the puppet formerly known as Wally the Writer, who was the puppet formerly known as Fred the Elf, voiced by Jim. Leo sits at a desk in a suit and tie and appeals directly to the camera, to the CBS executives watching, calling many of them out by name, and sells his ass off. In conclusion, I would like to point out that it is time for a revolutionary new look in primetime variety television, and the combination of the Muppets and George Slaughter can bring this to the world. Yes, for over 20 years, Jim Henson here, and the dedicated group of people that make up the Muppets have been developing the art of television puppetry to heights that were never before considered possible. And, at the same time, George Slaughter here has been developing and creating new forms in television comedy that have changed the very face of primetime television. From the same creative minds that brought you Ralph of The Jimmy Dean Show, 
Laugh-In, Sesame Street, The Share Show, Turn On. What? Oh, anyhow. These two giants of the industry have fused their creative juices into one great explosion of brilliant television programming. And what is this fusion of creative juices called? The Muppet Show. A show that will be loved and adored by every Nielsen home in the country. Small children will love the cute, cuddly characters. Young people will love the fresh and innovative comedy. College kids and intellectual eggheads will love the underlying symbolism of everything. Freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical hippies will love our freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical Muppets because that is what show business is all about. Yes, and when this show hits, the careers of the men who made the decision to put this show on the air will skyrocket. People like Bob Wood, Lee Curlin, Perry Lafferty, Oscar Katz, and even Tom Swafford will become stars in their own right. The names of these men will become household words like stove, sink, toilet, no, 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 like patriotism, apple pie, and mother. Friends, the United States of America needs the Muppet Show, and you should buy this show. Now, we're not pulling any punches here. I mean, there's nothing subtle about this bitch. So buy the show and put it on the air, and we'll all be famous. The Muppets will be famous, and CBS will be famous because we'll have a hit show on our hands, and we'll all get temperamental and hard to work with, but you won't care because we'll all make a lot of money, and Slaughter and Henson will be happy, and you will be happy, and Kermit's mother will be happy, and God will look down on us and smile on us, and he will say, let them have a 40 share. CBS Past. Luckily for Jim, and for us, a man across the Atlantic had taken an interest in the Muppets, and would be the knight in shining armor needed to get a Muppet show on the air. No, really, the guy is a literal knight. A Russia-born, Jewish, British, actual factual knight of the realm. Every good story needs one. Next time. It's time to start the music. It's time to light the lights. This show is going to change format a little bit in that we're going to be watching two episodes of The Muppet Show every week and talking about them. At least for now, this is the heart. This is going to be the heart of the show, and I'm very excited to finally be getting to one of the great television comedies. All right, so we'll talk to everybody in two weeks with the first two episodes of The Muppet Show. Oh, and if you are watching with us, we are going in production order. Anyone wants to watch ahead of us, we will be watching episodes 101 and 102, which are hosted by Juliet Prowse and Connie Stevens. Those are the first two we're going to watch. And I'll probably shout that out at the end of every episode just to, you know, let you know what we're watching next week, what guest stars we're watching next week. And we'll, we'll probably play a little game to see if Nick knows anything about these I 70s have never guest heard stars. <laughs> of either of these women in my life. All right. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.